Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. I am back in L.A., finally. My latest trek back to the East wasn't so long. I was only gone 10 days this time. I was out there for my mom's birthday, which you know, if you listen, and then I headed up to New York for a few days to, to gallivant and to see the Black Opera and to go to Grits and Biscuits and to hang out with a bunch of my friends. That would likely be my last trek to the East Coast until spring. It was a very good time. Lots of shenanigans. Some that I can tell, some that I can't. But a very good time was had. Many memories made that someday I might write about in a book. But for right now, I want to keep some of it to myself, if that's all right. There's so much to talk about this week. And we're going to talk about most of it on Friday. There's Darling Damson Idris. I don't know if this is because Mercury is in retrograde, but he's like nude on the gram. He posted a picture of himself appearing butt naked, wrapped in some fur while sitting in a very large chair. Let's see if I can pull this up. I want to make sure my description is very, very accurate, that I, that I catch all the details. He's smoking a cigar. He's sitting in front of a photograph of a lion. I'm sure this has some cultural significance that I'm missing here, but just the part that I get of his very brown and very chiseled. He's been working out. He's a little thin for a minute, but he's, he's getting his weight up. He's getting his man weight. But the context that I do understand, I like it very much. He's referring to himself as Baba Idris. That is the caption here. And I was like, Baba? I think my Ethiopian friend calls her father Baba. I was like, does Damson Idris want us to call him daddy now? I mean, I ain't mad at it if that's what you prefer. I could call him daddy. How old is he? He's legal, right? He's Yes, he's almost 30. Just checking. Just checking. Want to make sure I don't need to be locked up. There's very good news this week. There's a lot going on. Outside is very open. And Cardi and Marjorie are in Paris stunting on us. Two entirely different aesthetics. But Lord. They have released the fabric upon us. I also read this morning that Dave Chappelle has a new comedy special on Netflix, The Closer. I don't know if this is part of the material that he was doing over the summer. Remember, I went to see Dave Chappelle. He did a couple of shows in Vegas. I went to see him July 4th weekend. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet because I had to run some errands 
earlier today. I'm recording this late as hell. It's Tuesday at 3.56 p.m. on the West Coast, which means this is super, super, super late. I apologize, but I just couldn't pull it together yesterday. And then this morning I had an orthodontist appointment and, you know, and then I had to run a few errands to pull my life back together. So I didn't get a chance to watch Dave Chappelle. I did watch The Wonder Years. I have many thoughts that I'll share on Friday. It's not a bad show so far. And it's only the pilot. I've only seen the pilot episode. So I'm going to reserve judgment. But from what I saw in the pilot, and pilots are hard. Um, but what I saw in the pilot, they're over explaining blackness. And it might work for white people, but it's not going to work for the black audience. Because it's very clear that it's not speaking to us. Everything that they say that's like a black cultural reference, they explain. And I'm like, if you were talking to black people, you wouldn't explain it because we would get it. It's always been one of the challenges with telling black stories on network shows because of the because the majority of the audience is white folks. So you got to explain some details to white folks without losing black folks. Actually, I guess you won't have to wait for a Wonder Years review because that's pretty much it. Usher added two new shows for his Vegas residency. The tickets go on sale on Saturday. And I'm telling you this because apparently I am a publicist for Usher's residency in Vegas. Like, bad people were like, oh, I bought tickets because, like, you, you know, ranted and raved about the Usher show. And I saw the the footage on your Instagram page. And I was like, it's that amazing and I don't mind. But if somebody from Usher's team would kindly send me tickets to the show, I think the new shows are the 23rd and the 24th. I'll still be in the country then. I don't think I leave till the 26th. Holla. What else? Nick Cannon has declared he's going to be celibate until the end of the year. He acknowledges that, you know, four kids in one year might be a lot. And I would have said, you know, Nick Cannon, just use a condom. You know, condoms are very effective when used like properly and regularly. They they are a very effective measure of birth control. But celibacy is the most effective. So if you want to guarantee that you don't impregnate anyone or become pregnant, no sex is best. So so good for him for finally exercising some self-control. Good for Nick Cannon. I, there was something else I wanted to make sure we talked about this week. And I wrote it on this list and now I can't read my handwriting. Nick Cannon, Usher, Damson Idris... Khalees has a new single. Oh, Will Packer, our friend Will Packer. He just announced that he's producing the Oscars, which is so very exciting. I love Will Packer. Like, I liked Will Packer before he came on the show. And then after he came to talk to us, I was like, I really genuinely like love him. He's such just a wonderful, personable, likable human. Now I want to do a project with Will Packer just because I genuinely like Will Packer. There are benefits to having a positive personality. I'm obsessed with Will Packer. I'm so happy for him. You know that means the Oscars are going to be like very black. Very, very black, which I'm looking forward to. Okay, there's this one other thing that I can't read. Oh, okay. Kiana Mayo, she has a new podcast, Culturati. I was scrolling through Instagram and she had a clip of her new podcast, which I cannot wait to listen to. As soon as I'm done, like recording and editing this one, I will go like listen to Kiana's. The snippet that was on Instagram was Kiana talking about the first issue of Honey Magazine. She was one of the co-founders of the magazine. It's a very iconic cover. It's Lauryn Hill in front of a beehive. So she was talking, so she's talking about like how that cover came together. And I know a little bit about that because I think it's discussed, not even I think, I know. Kiana wrote about it in Joan Morgan's book, about Lauren Hill. So I kind of know some of the details, but I'm sure there'll be more in this podcast. But I mentioned this magazine and I'm so excited about it because 
I went to grad school for journalism and I was on and I was on the yard at Howard University for homecoming. And somebody came by and was passing out copies of this magazine. And I took one because I was obsessed with Lauren Hill, like most everyone at the time. And Lauren Hill was on the cover. And I just flipped through it. And between like the images and just skimming the articles, all these black women who had bylines in the magazine, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. At the time, my thoughts on Essence were it's my mother's magazine. I had no desire to write for Essence. It hadn't gone through um, its first refresh where it, it felt like it was speaking to women my age. But Honey was one of the first magazines that I read that I was like, oh, you're speaking directly to me. I still have that Lauren Hill issue for sure somewhere um, in a box in my parents' basement. But I have like I might have all the honeys. I never threw them out. Not the honeys. And then later, not the suede. I still have all of them. So congratulations to Kierna on her new podcast. I'm going to ask Kierna if she'll come talk to us. I think she will. I think she'll say yes. I have a feeling. Well, this conversation about Kierna leads into today's guest, Dr. Joan Morgan. Joan is a legendary writer and author. I discovered her. I'm going to tell you when I discovered Joan. When I was a junior in college, my African-American studies professor said we needed to read this book, um, When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost. And it was about hip-hop feminism. And I never thought of that term, which Joan did coin, but I never even thought of the concept of like there being a feminism aspect to hip-hop or feminists liking hip-hop. Like, I mean, I liked hip-hop to a degree. I was annoyed by like the bitches and the whatever, but I didn't have... um, I guess like really like the language or the knowledge base and just keep in mind this was the 90s to articulate fully like what the issue was. The women who were speaking out back then at the time were either like old white women. I want to say like Tipper Gore with like the the um, the parental guidance thing that used to go on the covers of tapes and CDs. And then C. Dolores Tucker, who was raging against, you know, the misogyny and hip hop and I think I was very male identified at the time because I want to say it was like Tupac was like, tell this bitch to shut up. And I was like, why is she trying to ruin a good thing? And then really, this was a black woman who was like, yo, it's not okay to speak about black women like this. Like right now she would be an icon. She's since passed away if you're not familiar with her. But at the time she was very much vilified, at least in the circles I was in, um, for, for wanting better, essentially for hip hop, wanting better treatment for black women as they existed in hip-hop. Say all that to say, but I read Joan's book, and I had a huge shift in my thinking at the time. And it was around then that I started playing with the idea of wanting to be a writer, but I wasn't quite sure in what capacity. It all came together, you know, like years later with the Honey magazine I was talking about, which, by the way, Joan and Karen are like besties. There's a mention in the interview that's coming up, the first thing I say is like, I haven't seen you since the Kennedy Center, which brings me to another one of Joan's many accomplishments. She has a second book that's about Lauren Hill, 20 years of the miseducation of Lauren Hill. And when she was doing the promo tour for that book, the DC leg of the tour took place at the Kennedy Center. And I moderated a discussion with Joan and Kierna. I was kind of on the stage in awe. And I was just like, wow, I'm like sitting here with like my idols. Um, And then afterward, there was a party and Bev Bond, um, Bev Bond from Black Girls Rock, 
who was a DJ before she was Bev Bond from Black Girls Rock, but she did the after party. So when you hear our conversation at the beginning of the podcast, that's what we're talking about. Let me actually read her official bio because I, I can talk about like little, I can talk about details from here and there. But officially, Joan Morgan is a Jamaican American author and journalist. She was born in Jamaica and raised in South Bronx, and she coined the term hip hop feminism. She's written for like everybody. In our interview, you will hear her mention British Vogue and the New York Times, but, she, but she's also written for The Village Voice, and she was a staff writer for Vibe at its very beginning. She was the executive editor of Essence for a while. She was the editorial director of Set Magazine. She's taught at Stanford, the New School, Duke University, and Vanderbilt University. She's, t- she's featured in the 2020 documentary On the Record about the rape allegations about hip-hop mogul Russell Simmons. And currently, currently, she's the program director for the Center for Black Visual Culture at my alma mater, NYU. My alma mater, and also where in 2020, Joan Morgan, what I'm reading says received, I like to say earned, earned her PhD in American Studies from New York University. That is just the overview of Joan's bio. If you know just a little bit about Joan, you know that I've skipped over a lot. Otherwise, we'd be here for the next five minutes just reading the bio. But I want you to get to Joan. I've obviously done the interview because I referenced it in last week's podcast. I interviewed Joan at the end of September, and I just didn't get a chance to, um, to edit the interview today. So apologies for the wait. But I told you that I'd get it to you this week. So I'm keeping my word at least on that. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, those who don't identify as either, please welcome my fave, Dr. Joan Morgan, to Ratchet and Respectable. Dr. Joan Morgan, I'm so happy to have you on the phone today. I'm so happy to be on the phone with you. I I always love hearing your voice as opposed to just reading your words. So that's nice. Same. I haven't spoken to you in quite some time. I haven't seen you in quite some time. I don't think I've seen you since like the Kennedy Center. Okay, that's scary. That was 2018. That was 2018. And my last memory is like, I told you, Bev Bond and Kierna that I was moving to LA and, and Bev tried to jump on the elevator to stop me. I was like, what? <laughs> she was like, you can't move to LA. Like, what? I know. And since then. I've like, since moved to LA. I've since moved to LA and quite a few other people have too. It's a mass exodus. Come join us. Everybody's here. I know, including my child. So that's the other thing. I, I saw he just graduated in May, yeah? Yeah. Well, he graduated in May, but graduation was in August because we had an in-person graduation. Okay. So yeah, he's off Melrose, living the dream. How do you feel about that? I haven't been on the other side of the country. My child told me the first time I took him to LA, he was seven. I was with Sophia Chang and our kids and uh, we took them to swingers and he looked around and he said to me, mom, I think I'm going to be, have to be here to do what it is that I have to do. He said this at seven. At seven. So I had a really long time to get used to the fact that my child has been a West Coast child for a very long time. I'm 40, what, 42 now? My mom is really not okay with me being on the other side of the country. Like, she's she's tolerating it, but she'd rather have me, you know, at least in New York. I think there are a couple of things. One is that I have, I, Sule is actually living my dream. Like, I've wanted to move to Cali probably for the last 20 years. Um, 
And I've actually done so for short periods of time to Northern California uh, twice, once in the 90s, like 95 for about six months. And then I moved again to teach at Stanford for about six months. And so Callie, and we have such a strong uh, friend slash family base, friends that are family uh, that in, in LA and Northern California. I know he's well um, taken care of. And I actually, even though Virginia is closer, I would probably still see him more because he's in LA than Virginia, because I don't go to Virginia, but I do end up in California. So, you know, he's living, he's living both of our dreams in, in, in certain ways. I'm fine. He calls every day. Like he, he sends a text in high school. You, you all your fights are about not checking in, right? Like you need to let me know before 1am that you're spending the night at a friend's house. And then they get out in the world and have to pay rent and they text all the time because they're adult. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I talk to my dad sometimes twice a day yeah. and I have like an ongoing text conversation with him in between yeah. the calls about nothing. And I'm fine with it. Yeah. But if he tried that when I was like, I don't know, in college or 16 in the house, absolutely not. I would have been World War II. Now I'm happy to hear from him. Exactly. You know, it's it's nice. Like, I, it's nice to sort of see them move into adulting, but also respect. They have a different understanding of what you had to do in order to adult so that they could live the lives that they're, lead, they're leading. And so it's it's nice. Like, I... I actually just wish I could spend more time with him because he's just cool as shit now, you know. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I you're like, no, my kid is cool. I raised a cool kid, right? I mean, Jamila sent me a picture, Demetria, um, at like three thirty three in the morning, which I, of course I didn't see because I was fast asleep. But when I woke up in the morning, I realized it was three thirty three in the morning, and she sent a picture, and I was sleepy, so I thought it was an old picture of she and I. And I was like, where was this taken? And I looked again and it was actually her and Sule. And the text said, Sule and I are at the same party. <laughs> That's, he's living his best life. He's out there doing his thing. My niece is a model and she just moved out there and did being all black excellence. So there you go. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also, 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
and you can't leave us now because you've got a job. You're you're the director <laughs> of the Center of Black Visual Culture at NYU. You've got to be. I am going in New York. Yeah, absolutely nowhere. So I'm the program director, um, and I work for uh, under Dr. Deborah Willis. She likes to say we work together, but she is the director of the Institute for African American Affairs, which is where the center is housed. And it's kind of my dream job. Like it's the dream job that I didn't know existed or that I wanted, but I, I, I feel like every job I've ever done has trained me for this job. And I didn't really realize that what was, that's what was happening. But I basically just make, I just bring really cool people together to explore events and topics that I choose. And so I get to work with artists and filmmakers and content creators and scholars and critics and uh, be a little bit of like, oh, what happened if we, I get to play alchemist. Like, suppose we put this cool person with this completely unexpected cool person and have them talk about this cool thing. Like I can, I can pretty much do that all day. <laughs> you think I can do that all day? It's like, all day. like a, a big journalism round table with like a giant budget, I'm hoping, because it's NYU and you just bring everyone together. So what happens is that it's exactly like a big journalism. Like basically, I'm an editor-in-chief of a magazine, but it's in academia. And no, because it's academia, the budgets are not that great. But people love Deborah Willis and they kind of like me. So they're just willing to do things for us with good grades. But it's great. What is the dream? What's the dream panel? Who would you love to like have all together to talk about what? Well, um, some of them are actually some of them are actually in. Like Tarana Burke is coming in to talk about her book. Um, yes. I'm trying to like get uh, Julian Castro in next month to talk about the fact that you know the Supreme Court has. Uh, refused to extend the eviction moratorium and we might have 30 million homeless people in the United States in addition to what we already have. New York is is uh, now the most expensive city in the country to live in. The average rent for one bedroom is $2,910. I think our median income is like 31000 So, you know, we're about to have like some real problems, you know, um, Yeah. So basically I haven't come across yet the person that I really want to have in and who's kind of told us no. (laughs) I'm sure it will happen. What a fine life you lead. What a fine life. And then I still get to write and, you know, work on all the other things that I'm I'm working on. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm working on screenwriting. I'm still working on my songwriting. I'm just I'm still doing some journalism infrequently, but still doing some. And I just did something for British Vogue and I just finished a book review for the New York Times. So it's great. I really am at a stage in my life where I get to do kind of what I want to do. I love it. I love it. I actually wrote something. I wrote a feature for the first time in maybe like three years the other day. And I was like, this is weird. Right. <laughs> it is like it's, it's not as much like riding a bike as you think it would be because it's a whole different. We know what it is. It's a different voice from like writing books or writing blogs to writing features. I was like, this is I don't know how this is going to go. Oh, no. And remember, I just defended a dissertation like in 2019. Yeah. So I was doing 
academic writing, which is such a different and God-awful mode um, for (laughs) such a long time that I think part of the reason I did the Lauryn Hill book was just to convince myself that I could still write for like normal people. Normal people again. What's the biggest, I haven't done academic writing since I graduated. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest like difference? Is it like all the citations? Is it just like more formal? So the citation practice is a lot because you always have to be like, like when I was doing coursework, the hardest thing for me to understand, like as a journalist, not just a journalist, but someone actually that had written a book that's being used in academia for a long, for, that book has been in academia for about, I don't know, 15 years before I entered into the program. Um, and I was talking about chicken heads, chicken yes. heads come home to boost. Yeah. Oh. And so I would just say something and so, you know, a professor would send it back and say, I need a citation there. And I would be like, but I, why? Like, this is what I think I'm telling you what I think. And I would go back and have to find someone to cite it. And so many times I would have to go back and fi- I would find the person who, who said it in an article. And then I would look back at who they were citing and the original citational source would be me. So I would end up just having to cite my own self. Are you serious? Yeah. Like, you know, this comes from chicken heads, blah, 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 blah. It was just, yeah, it was definitely a practice. But I tell people who are journalists, it's, you know, when we write for different publications, we have to learn different voices. So yes. when you let's say you wrote for Vibe, Essence, and the New York Times. All of those have different institutional voices. Academia has its own institutional voice. And it's actually really challenging to write well in academia because everyone likes to use too many words. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the only place I'd ever encountered sentences that were 17 lines long without a period. Like, you know, we couldn't do that crap. Like, no, that's journalist. a quick way to get cursed out. Right. Like someone <laughs> would say to you, this is clearly a run on sentence. And academics say, well, sometimes you need the space to, you know, explore really complicated theory. And it's like, no, this is an no. obtuse, not completely worked through idea. So part of, for me, what took the dissertation so long to write was just the insistence that I was going to write well. And, um, write at least as much in my voice as possible because I really need someone who is the young person who was like me and wondering if they can do the PhD thing. I need them to pick up that dissertation and say, I don't have to lose all of myself in this process. But it, you know, it was a bit of a fight, like, honestly, to be able to to write that way because they just don't, Academics don't really appreciate that. They're they're far more comfortable with you being obtuse than they are with you just being very clear and talking like, you know, how would you explain it to your grandmother? There you go. Exactly. What made you want to get a PhD? The real reason for that is very much has to do with what the um where we were in journalism and like 2008, 2009, I could already read the writing on the wall. Um, Magazines were folding like crazy. Uh, You know, I try to tell people 
people don't believe it. I mean, you know this is true, but it was actually much easier to make a living as a journalist 20 years ago than it is now. So when I do a piece now and someone's offering me a dollar a word Mm-mm. or $2 a word, they are so <laughs> excited that they're offering me a dollar a word. And I try to tell them this is, I made a dollar a word at the very first piece I wrote for Essence Magazine when I was literally 24 years old. So that would be 32 years ago. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it just didn't, I had a kid that I needed to put through college. Um, at the time I was living upstate, so I had a mortgage that I needed to pay and I just couldn't see how I, I just thought journalism wasn't going to be a sustainable way to do it. I also was just really tired of talking about hip hop and feminism and I wanted to explore and have the room to do something else. And I also knew I wasn't paying for a PhD program. So I applied to one program, um, which was NYU. And I was like, if I get in, I'll go. And if I don't get in, I guess I won't get a PhD. And I was a McCracken fellow. So it was fully funded for the first five years of the program. And then I applied for fellowships and things like that after. So I just, I needed to buy myself some time and I wanted to explore something else intellectually, but I also need knew that at the time I was like, oh, I've done a bit of teaching. I could do a tenure track line and maybe that's how I'll finish out the end of my career. Then I got into academia and realized that as soon as I graduated, I was probably never writing another academic article again. <laughs> so that tenure yeah, I so much for that. was not the question. So I really do have the perfect job. Um, for me, you know, um, I can, I can speak, I still get invitations to teach. So if I want to teach, I, I can, if I really miss the classroom, but this is probably the best relationship I could have to academia where everyone is really happy. <laughs> it's like, they're happy. I'm happy. Everyone's happy. Yeah, exactly. And the fact, and you know, no small part of that is that I work for an incredible scholar and artist herself. So because she is an artist, there's just a way that she approaches academia that's very different than if I was in a tenure track um, position. Yeah, tenure tracks don't really seem to be working out very well for Black women. Uh, So very few people get tenure, period. So that's the other thing that they don't um, that they don't tell you, like tenure is not something that you're guaranteed. Anyone is guaranteed regardless of, irrespective of who you are, um, when you start out. So you are talking about, I don't know, the top less than 5%, I would say in terms of black, uh, and in black women, it's, it's, I don't know what the number is, but it's really low. I, I, really I want to say maybe 2%. Yikes. And that might be generous. Um, so I didn't, you know, I wasn't worried at, like I wasn't going to get tenure because I'm just sort of like, if I put my mind to it, I just assumed that that would happen, which I think you have to be that way. If you're black going after tenure, you just have to assume that you're going to do everything possible. Like most people who are on a tenure track assume they're going to get it. Like they're not like thinking they're going to be turned down for it, but it just, I'm not a good fit with academia in that way. So my decision wasn't like, I may do all this work and not get tenure. I had to ask myself, 
even given the body of work that I've already done, even if that accelerated my process or something, you know, some, I graduated, I was 55 when I defended. And so I had to ask myself, what do I want the next, this last 20 years of writing, right? This is the legacy work. This is the sort of ending of the career. Where do I want that work to reside? And I couldn't see giving seven to eight more years of it to academia. I felt like I had given that enough. I'm happy with the academic articles that I've produced. I like my dissertation a great deal, but I needed to get back to the audience that I wrote for for 25 years you know, before that. I'm very clear that that's where I want the work I do to land and reside in the audience that I want to continue to write for. And I just, I couldn't see limiting it to academia in that way. So that, that really was what it was. Like I couldn't see like writing six more academic articles and an academic monograph. And I, I just feel like for writing my relationship to it has to be what is it that I really want to write and I want to say? And since I'm not in a position anymore when I was a younger writer where I had to write to just sort of pay bills, which kind of really can mess up your relationship to writing, quite frankly. Yep. Um, nobody really tells you that, that when you have to turn your art into the thing that gets you paid, like you develop a very complicated uh, relationship with it. So, you know, the nice thing about having my NYU job is that I, I'm supported and it allows me to really, um, when I take on a writing project, it's really about the fact that I want to do it and that's it. Like I'm not compromising there and, and spending my time writing things I'm not really that interested in. And I'm very fortunate and blessed to be able to do that. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without the PhD. So I'm, you know, no regrets, but uh, it was a very uncomfortable, uneasy relationship, (laughs) for sure. No, well, one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is um, women of, I was going to say like a certain age, but I think it's really over 40 who pivot, who make pivots in their life. Mm -hmm. I think so much, and you you can talk about this as well. I'm sure you felt it, but I feel like people think that you figure out your life somewhere, like it has to be figured out before 35, and then after that, it's all downhill from there, <laughs> which I'm just like, really? Because um, I just hear people do things, and they'd be like, oh, like you're too old, or you're too, you're going to start over now? And it's like, well, yeah, like, what else am I going to do? I don't want to do this. So I, I think, Demetria, here is the blessing of being part of what we used to call the hip hop generation, right? So we came up being able to see an art form, right, that moved from something that didn't have national, let alone international attention or was, you know, was certainly not a multi-billion dollar industry become a thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so and we saw people who were able to create careers out of that, myself included, because you were chasing your passion for a thing. So I, I think in some ways we really are generations because that's that's about two generations, maybe two point five of dreamers and people who learn to trace dreams and then weren't afraid because you did that and you did something that really had no other 
um, template before you. So for example, and I know this from reading your post about your parents, no, my, my, I am an immigrant to this country. My parents are immigrants. They were not raising writers. You know what I mean? They mm-hmm. were not raising uh, the the way that my family supports my son um, being in film and being a filmmaker is completely different than the grief that and the worry that they gave me when I said I wanted to be a writer. And part of that is they had just never seen that before. So, you know, when, um, you actually, and we, we, there was no template for me to follow for what a quote unquote hip hop journalists, what you do, what courses you take, what you don't take, where you work, there was nothing to follow, like kind of made that up as we went along. And so I have had a career my entire life that I sort of have made up as I go along. So when people would ask me, what's your 10-year plan, your five-year plan? I mean, I kind of know what I'm doing right now. I know what feels good. And I know what, there's still some marks I'd like to to hit. Like there's a novel that still needs to be written. I definitely know that there's uh, uh, film and television uh, projects that I've always wanted to do that I now can spend time and dive into and and do. I didn't know that songwriting was something that was in my wheelhouse, but did one and that, that worked out pretty well. That um, album, uh, Priya Darshini's album is her debut album. And we co-wrote a song on there together and it was Grammy nominated. So that's encouraging. To, to, I didn't know that. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, that's an encouraging uh uh, that's a sign of encouragement that, you know, I, I can continue doing that again. And I didn't plan for any of that. So I think that um, a lot of this pressure that younger people feel is that they're given this visual and digital access into other people's um what they interpret as success, because we're all curating our lives, right? So they're not showing you the parts where dang, that deal money is late and the contract took longer than I thought and my finances are a mess, which is really does happen with creatives, quite quite frankly, but you'll never mm-hmm. gonna see that part of it on the gram, right? So they all feel this intense amount of pressure from each other to have it look good, right? By a certain certain age. And I'm not saying that, planning and and uh being strategic about the direction you want to take isn't important you know it it is and I, I have a son that's living that reality out great for him but I'd be so disappointed if he wasn't open you know if he called me and said in in two years and said mom I want to go back into auditioning for um because I miss acting I'd be like okay <laughs> you know Okay. 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 No, one of the reasons I'm so very thankful for for you and Kierna and Dream and and others from, um, I guess that you came up with is that it gave a sense of direction. I feel like I'm like the second generation of that. Mm-hmm. 
So now I can be like, oh, okay, like, you know, if I ever get bored with this whole thing, like maybe I can go get a PhD or maybe I can go be like an editor at a major publishing house like Karen or maybe I can go do documentaries like Dream. Like there, at least there's there's something to look forward to. There's like some sort of blueprint as opposed to just like completely just, you know, winging it. And and the thing is, is that I didn't realize how many things being in a magazine <laughs> trains you for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I so many of my colleagues are uh, successful screenwriters and and uh, showrunners and producers. And you know, when I I talk to them. And I'm like, how did you pivot? How did you make the switch? Were you thinking they they all say like it's really not that different? The skills they learned are the kind of skills you learn of in a magazine, especially if you're in a startup, and especially if you're in a startup for a black magazine, because you know money is just really you're doing all jobs, right? All you're jobs, doing all the jobs. <laughs> um, but yeah, there are people who've gone on to like Mitzi Miller is, uh, at, you know, now in development. Yeah, now does run the studio. What? Right, exactly. Uh, Selwyn Hines, who my son actually works for, um, Cheo, who's uh, mm-hmm. Ch- I mean, you know, all of us really came up doing the same kind of work and realized that we had translatable uh, skill sets. So, you know. I don't know, uh, to to that generation who feels like you have to have it all figured out by 35, you, you really just have to figure out what your passion is right now and then be open to allowing it to being something else and not freaking the hell out. Because the pivot doesn't necessarily, sometimes you have to pivot because you have to pivot. Like a lot of people who pivoted, between 2008 and 2010 didn't necessarily pivot because they wanted to. We were in a recession and the kind of work that was, um, that used to be available to you just wasn't available um, anymore. COVID also made a lot of people pivot because economic um, scarcity meant that they had to do something else. So that, that ability, you can never have it all figured out because you can't always predict what's coming. Who can predict a global pandemic? Like nobody. Exactly. Like this is some ish that happens in movies. Right. And yet here we are. Here we are. Who could predict 9-11? Like nobody. That part. You know? And that 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 fundamentally changed uh changed the world. Like my son doesn't know a world where you don't show ID before you go up into a uh, into a building for anything, right? You like check in, you have to show ID, you go, you go upstairs in, to go up in an office building. I, that didn't exist before nine 11. Um, you know, people used to be able to wait with you, uh, in the waiting area as you waited for the plane. <laughs> yeah. You tell that to people, you're like, they're like, what? Like what? Yeah. 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 No, nine 11 is, I was in grad school. I was living downtown at the time. It was my senior, my final year of um, at NYU, and nine eleven happened, and the whole like inter- not inter- well, yeah, entertainment industry. The budgets got slashed. I mean, the advertising budgets got slashed, which means the magazine budgets got slashed. So I was graduating from NYU with a degree in magazine journalism, and magazines were getting cut left and right. Right. I couldn't find a job. I had to move home, and when I moved back to New York, I worked for the city. 
And then I went into book publishing because jobs and editorial were so hard to find. They were so scarce and they paid next to nothing. And I was like, I can't live in New York off this and book publishing paid more. Yeah. That's directly how I ended up is like working in book publishing for five years and then had to pivot back around to magazines. And then I went to Essence. Yeah. The pivot is important because if you don't accept the fact that you can pivot and you may have to pivot and that pivoting isn't necessarily a bad thing. When you get hit with those external realities, like people, you can really crumble. You know, um, I know some people who had very difficult times pivoting and uh, it caused them a lot of uh, mental and financial anguish because they just couldn't really see themselves uh, doing anything else. You know, their identities were very tied up in what they did, which I think is just an American thing anyway. Like, you know, how we start conversations with what do you do? Not necessarily who you are. Yeah. Like, what do you like to do? Right. <laughs> like, what do you do? Right. Yeah. Do you ever feel, or did you ever feel, I don't ask, well, how do I want to ask that? Have you ever felt, there we go, pigeonholed by being a public feminist. And the reason I'm asking that is because you wrote your first book about being a feminist very early on in your career. And I feel like once you sort of define yourself in this way, in such a big way, because that book was so huge, people just think that that's all you are and that's all you talk about and that's all you're interested in. Did you ever feel pigeonholed by that? Um, Yes. And that's how I ended up in grad school in part. Um, But I also realized that (laughs) you know, I'm not a person that's afraid to disappear. Um, and so I just, I, I say no a, a lot. Like, and I think that people are often afraid to say no because visibility has become such a currency, um, in this present time. But I really didn't, come up during, like, I'm not a product of like the digital age in that way. And so I don't have a problem saying to people, I am not interested. I know you're working on a documentary on women in hip hop or feminism, and your documentary feels like the most important thing in the world to you. And it should, because it's your documentary. And you are telling me that my voice is critical in that, but it's really not. At this point, I've done enough work that there are enough people familiar with that work that I've done that you can interview them, right? Still get what you need to know. And I can be out in the world free to like explore and do other work. So part of it is that I just have a, a relationship with visibility that means that sometimes I just disappear. Plus, can I just tell you that that is such a flex to be like, I've influenced so many people, basically, that my voice will be heard whether I'm here or not. I love that. At 56, you can you can say that because someone's been, people have been reading that book now for about, I don't know, what, 25 years? And if I can't cede the platform to the young, brilliant women who have taken that book up, who've written about hip hop feminism, who've gone on to write their own books, like, you know, it's, it's, some, so let me tell you who my mentor for this is. And she would, you would, you're going to be completely surprised. And she would be shocked when I was 20 something years old. And I was a hip hop journalist. I used to say, 
I don't want to be a 40 something year old music journalist, right? Because I felt like at 20 something, like you do, that at 40, your, your ear starts to like age out, right? Like in terms of knowing, like having your finger on the pulse of what makes this music move through the culture in a certain way, right? And so I'd be like, yeah, it's good now. This isn't 24 year old me talking, but like, I don't want to be like 40 and up in the club. And so I would go to like record things because like industry things, because that's part of your job when you're a music journalist. And I would watch Sylvia Rohn and Merlin Bob. And Sylvia probably had 15 minutes, 20 tops in any spot. She was completely focused about who she came in to see. She would do a round of like hellos. And she would be out like that was that was it because there was really no reason for her to be there any longer than that. And she wasn't at everything. And at 24, I was like, note to self, grow up and be Sylvia Rohn. And I I really have held on to that to this day. I love that. And that's not shocking at all. Like Sylvia Rohn is like freaking amazing. I totally get that. Mm-hmm. I totally. My person is Beth Ann Hardison. Oh yeah. Like if well, I could grow up and be Beth Ann Hardison, because she hit me the other day and was like, not I mean, not the other day, but I guess like last winter. Um, but she was in Morocco for the season, <laughs> not for the month, <laughs> for the season. Yeah, I just I had dinner with her uh, last week, Kieran and Elizabeth and I, and you know she's like my other mother, and it's so funny because people will be like, ask me how Beth Ann is, and they'll be like, is she home? And in my head, I'm like. Well, it's Beth Ann, so which home? Which one? On which continent are we referring to? New York home, Mexico home, Morocco um, home. But yeah, she's been um, an incredible... Like When people ask me about role models, like I don't have a ton of them, but I saw Beth Ann at Howard University's first hip-hop conference, right? So this is probably 1991. And I saw this incredible chocolate dreadlocked woman on stage. And I don't know, I can't tell you what it was she was saying, but something in my little head clicked and said, that is who I want to be when I grow up. And you know me, so it's not, I'm actually probably on the shyer side, particularly with strangers. So it is not like me at all to go up to somebody after a panel that I don't know and like we you know, like who I, I have to stay in touch with you. That's like so not my personality, but I, I did. And by some stroke and fortune, I've been able to have that one woman in my life for I don't know, 30 something like 35 years. And I realize I was so looking for, I didn't know exactly who I wanted to be, what I look when I grew up. But when I'm, when I saw Beth Ann, I was like, that is what I wanted to look like. And it had nothing to do with being in fashion. It had nothing to do with being an agent. It didn't have to do with her career. Like she just really struck me as like, that's what a free black mm-hmm. woman looks like moving through mm-hmm. the world. And I know Whatever it is that I figure out with this life, I want to be free. And I, I mean, the, the lessons she's taught me have been countless, countless. Didn't you write, you wrote a big feature on Beth Ann 
Was it from? Yeah, for, for British, British Vogue. Vogue. Yeah, yeah. Like as you were speaking, I was like, wait, okay, I think I remember something about this. Okay. Yeah, that was a lot of pressure. <laughs> Why? But I'm, I'm glad the way it turned out. Um, well, it's the pressure. Well, one, it's it's British Vogue and Sir Enningfell, right? So because it's British Vogue, I definitely felt because of the way I feel about um, Edward Enningfell and the work that he's doing at British Vogue, I'm like such a stand. So that felt like pressure. I also hadn't written a feature mm. on anybody in well over a decade. And also, it lit- Bethann, my mother calls her my other mother. So, you know, I was not going to be able to breathe until Bethann read the article and said that it was like, Okay, <laughs> you know, because I I know that that's a pretty hard, you know, pretty um hard high bar to to clear. Um and she's comfortable telling me things about myself that nobody mm-hmm. else is comfortable telling me about myself. So, that was that was it. I was definitely uh pretty nervous and I just also wanted to do her legacy justice and so trying to do that in the piece was originally inside assigned at 1500 words. And I was like, I have to hand in a spotless 2200 <laughs> uh, so that they feel like they can't cut Find anything. Find a space. Find a space. <laughs> yeah. right. I need exactly. an extra page. <laughs> exactly. And they gave it, which was really, um, really Well, nice. yeah. I mean, you're but, yeah. Joan Morgan and she's Bethany Hardison. And the pictures were amazing. Like there's, come on. Oh my God, those pictures. Iconic. Those pictures. But pretty much everyone who worked on that, you know, the photographer, myself, like, that's the other thing that was beautiful about Beth Ann. She chose everyone she worked with, the makeup artists. So we're all people who wouldn't have been on British Vogue's, uh, necessarily been on British Vogue's uh, radar had it not been for Beth Ann kind of choosing, because when you're Beth Ann Hardison, you could do that, uh, who you want surrounding you to do this, to do this piece. Like, you know, a lot of people are just happy to be in British Vogue and they'll take whoever um, is assigned to them. But she's always been like that. So uh, I'm very grateful that she chose me to wrote, to write it, which also added another level of pressure, right? right? Because I couldn't write the article from the position of impartial journalists, like that would have just been dishonest. Yeah. Is she still working on her? Aren't you supposed to be writing her memoirs? Aren't you supposed to be working on convincing her to write her memoirs? She is, I have, yes, I, I have been uh, applying all kind of pressure to her forever and she is making great progress and I will allow the official announce, announcement to, to say okay. the rest. That makes me happy. Yes. There's something forthcoming that brings me joy. Mm-hmm. Well, John, that's all of my questions for you. Is there anything that you want us to know about you that we should be talking about with you that you're working on, that you're looking out for? Well, you know, Dimitri, I want to say something to you because I think that something you said earlier about Dream and Kierna um, and myself laying a, a template and that, that's been very, very rewarding to see how you 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 and the generation of writers that's come up with you, black women writers that's come up with you have run with it. But I also want to say that, you know, you're very inspiring to us because 
when you're creating a thing, you're not necessarily thinking about the other things that it could be parlayed into because those opportunities don't exist, right? So there were no podcasts, there were no blogs, like like there was no uh, ability necessarily to reinvent yourself into these different things because there weren't multiple lanes in that way. And I feel like you... And your generation of, of um, writers have created these lanes that uh, we actually are now able to also enter. And so I think that it's been reciprocal in a way that people don't often acknowledge. And so I'd like to thank you um, for that and, and being inspiring and um, encouraging me to think about how to continually reinvent and what possibilities are are there? Even a little thing like, well, come move to LA if you want to. Like, I could. That's probably more real to me because you LA. moved to LA. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like you actually you actually did. So I just want to say thanks, um, thanks for that, and that you know I love you and you're amazing and wonderful, and um, you never fail to just make me laugh my ass off at home because here just go here comes Demetria with too much truth on her IG. <laughs> my antics and shenanigans and uncomfortable truths. Yes. Yes. Upsetting the people. But yeah, it's it's wonderful. Thank you. I'm I'm sitting here sniffing back tears. I I'm genuinely humbled. Like I read your book um when I was a junior in college. So to be like, you know, on on the phone with you and be able to text you and be like a mentee to you and all of that is just, you know bigger than my wildest 19, 20 something year old dreams. Mm, well, this is the work, you know, yes. this is the work that counts for sure. Yes. Ah, we're having a love fest and I love it. I love <laughs> it. Well, thank you so much, Joan Morgan. This is amazing to talk to you. All right. Well, let me know if you need anything. I'm always here. Isn't she just amazing? And by the way, the Beth Ann Hardison memoir that we were talking about Between the time I interviewed her in late September, I want to say like September 21st, 24th, somewhere in there, there has since been an announcement that Beth Ann Hardison is doing a memoir. And and Kiana Mayo, who's over at, um, where's Kiana? One World Books. Look at this 360. I feel like we've been having a 360 conversation this whole podcast. She signed Beth Ann Hardison's book. I love it. So that is the episode for today. We'll be back on Friday with more commentary, more ratchet and respectable. I hope y'all like this new format where we're doing an interview, one episode, and then like commentary on the other. So I think that's probably what we're about to switch to. I'm not sure. I'm playing around formats again. We'll see. All right. We will talk again on Friday with commentary and shenanigans. There's also an FDNY scandal that I want to talk more about, but I haven't had a chance to dig into the details. I think that's an important conversation. So we'll have it very soon. If you want merch for Don't Waste Your Pretty, it is available on DemetriaLLucas.com. I have not yet given a drop date for the Ratchet and Respectable stuff. You know I only do it in the fall. So it is coming, I promise. Okay, that's everything. All right.